Hello and welcome to The Simplicity Principle, the podcast which looks at how to keep it simple in a complex world. I'm Julia Hobsbawm, author of the book The Simplicity Principle. This podcast connects you with some of the great voices in the world today. Together we unpick and unpack complexity to identify the success that sometimes only simplicity can bring. Simplicity, you see, is not all about inner calm and personal fulfillment, although there's nothing wrong with that, but it cuts through the layers of complexity which are hallmarks of so much of modern life and which hamper our progress as a society. Simplicity is part of what I call social health, better connected behaviour in the always-on era. So there's a lot to simplicity and I look forward to sharing it with you and to getting your feedback. You can find at Simplicity Principle on Instagram, or you can find me on at Julia Hobsbawm on Twitter. In today's episode, I'm looking at mindfulness, that practice which has gone mainstream and which represents what for many is the idea of simplicity, that of a kind of personal peace and calm. The journey in life is towards wholeness, simplicity, clarity, away from complexity and grabbing things for ourselves. The journey in life is letting go, not acquiring. That was Anthony Selden, the great historian, academic and powerful advocate for mindfulness. The simple things in life are actually almost the portal to the complex. And we need to start with the simple. And from there, we can actually have a a glimpse of complexity. And that's Louise Chester, the extraordinary leader in corporate mindfulness with the Potential Project and Mindfulness at Work, who we'll come back to later on. But first, to Anthony Selden, Sir Anthony Selden, political biographer of no less than five British prime ministers, celebrated pioneering educator, now vice-chancellor at the University of Buckingham. He is a surprisingly powerful advocate of the opposite of traditional power plays in politics and public life. Anthony, thank you for joining me. Absolute pleasure, Julia. Thank you for having me on. So I want to open with the great quote by no less a figure than Confucius, who said, life is really simple, but we insist on making it complicated. What do you make of that sentiment? Well, I think it underlines the fact that the great truths are and have been out there for thousands of years. And we think that we have to make things complicated. In my experience, the greatest minds, the greatest academics and thinkers say things simply and clearly, and you know that they're true. And you can tell that, can't you, with the great economic thinkers like Keynes or social reformers like Beveridge. It's really very simple what they had to say. I agree with you entirely that some of the greatest figures in history and in society today extol the merits of simplicity, but yet we're still a little bit snobby about simplicity, aren't we, as if it's somehow simplistic? So we are, because I think the ego and the mind get in the way, and the journey in life, I have no doubt, speaking in my 67th year, that the journey in life is towards wholeness, simplicity, clarity, away from complexity and 
grabbing things for ourselves. The journey in life is letting go, not acquiring. The great academics, the great human beings throw their doors open and know the essential truth, which is actually that we can own nothing. We no idea that the greatest thinker has ever had has been their own ideas. They've all been benefited from the ideas and standing on the shoulders of others, or indeed like Mozart with the great music or Eliot with T.S. Eliot with his great poetry, it just comes to the simple empty mind. So yeah, Julia, I'm completely uh, with you. I'm in the vanguard of your movement and I try, but usually fail, to lead my life in accordance with the simplicity principle. Well, that's obviously music to my ears, but it's also no surprise because um, you are one of the people that influenced me in my thinking as I was getting ready to write the book because you were a very early proponent of probably the most popular front of simplicity, which is the mindfulness movement. You talked to me about mindfulness at least a decade ago. Julia, we went for a walk, didn't we, in Albright? on the Suffolk coast. And we walked with a group, didn't we, in silence. And it's not to deny conversation and the importance of conversation, although most of the emails we receive, most of the conversations we have really don't need to take place. Many of the meetings that we have are unnecessary. And Mindfulness is not acquiring anything. It's the opposite of acquiring. It is giving up. It is a preparation for death. The people who will be most frightened of death are those people who have the most possessions which they cling on to and defend themselves with, or the most intellectual property that they cling on to. If one truly learns how to let go, and every time we meditate and mindful, we're just connecting with the present moment, the here now that Eliot talks about, we are preparing for death because into death we go with nothing. And death, I believe, I don't know, I'm, I'm not dead, is truly nothing very much at all for those who manage to discover simplicity and in simplicity, we discover a word we haven't used, which is love. Wow, let's just unpick that. Anthony has made the connection between the enormous questions of life and, in fact, death, and the idea that letting go brings us peace and, with it, simplicity. He's very clear about how we should let go of the idea of acquiring, be that material possession or competitive ego-led titles of what we do for a living. Simplicity is really about connecting to the selfless and not the selfish. He's also given us another simplicity lesson, that of living in the present moment, something mindfulness is particularly good at helping us achieve. It's really complicated to always be either living in the past or trying to predict or gain, say, the future, especially now. Back to Anthony. We can never understand the origins of the universe or the grand unifying theory of matter with the mind. It cannot be understood by the mind alone. You're equating spirituality with simplicity. You have a faith 
Do you believe that there's a correlation there between people who practice a faith with its rituals, with its observances of space as well as ritual? Do you think there's a correlation between religious and spiritual observance and simplicity and a struggle for those who don't have that? I think one can obviously spend one's entire life following rituals but not be growing spiritually. The journey of spiritual growth is a journey towards simplicity and acceptance and love and a transcendence of the little ego and the discovery of the omnipresence of the self, the universal self. So this is not something that can be needs to be believed. It can just be experienced. I'm going to switch track now, Anthony, and talk not about the spirituality of simplicity, but about the very practicality and management of simplicity. You wrote a piece in the Times newspaper today, the day that I'm interviewing you, saying that a crisis is history's biggest catalyst for change. So in the enormously complicated times that we live in, how does simplicity help us cut through not just complexity, but a crisis? Well, in this current crisis, but in the war, in all wars, people find what really matters. So people are talking to neighbours who they may not have talked to for 20 years. People are re-establishing relationships with friends they were at school with or family members. They are talking to their children, parents, loved ones as never before because it shakes the utter core of our beliefs about what matters we what we think matters is not it turns out what really does matter so isn't it odd that in the first world war an experience that was beyond harrowing and indescribable in the trenches that many who fought in it still described it to the end of their days as the most meaningful time of their lives because the friendships, the love that existed between soldier and soldier or between helpers in the match factories and the munitions factories that stripped of the ordinary concerns about status and profile and doing better than others, we discover the deep truths of life, which is the joy of being alive, the joy even in a first world war trench of seeing a butterfly or of having a a cup of rusty tea or deep bonds with other human beings. So I think that this is why terrible times can also paradoxically be extraordinarily profound and moving times. You've described very eloquently how a crisis cuts through complexity and we're witnessing this from political leaders across the world in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. But what happens when the war stops? Don't politicians and bureaucrats envelop themselves again in the security blanket of complexity, of bureaucracy, of muddle and miscom and and, and inefficiency? How do we get simplicity into the body politic of politics itself? It depends whether the change is mechanical and superficial or whether it's profound. So there's an afterglow effect. So after the Second World War, 
there was still a collective spirit that existed and was utilised by the Labour government of Clement Attlee in the national end. So Stafford Cripps, the Chancellor of the Exchequer from 1947 to 50, used that collective spirit to see through policies in the collective good. But it fades in many of us. It's not uncommon for people to have profound experiences where they get bounced out of their everyday, relatively superficial way of living into a very profound sense of what's important, maybe when a parent dies. But then before long, one bounces back into, without even recognising that it's happened, back into one's uh, hitherto existing way of being. And the art in life is transformation, enduring and ever-growing transformation uh, in the direction of greater simplicity and truth and love and acceptance, rather than just having spikes and then returning to how one was before and to be in touch with nature, which can only exist in the present moment. And, you know, it's not easy. And the journey back is tough and and it's full of hurdles, uh, uh, handicaps and discouragements along the way. But it is worthwhile. Is technology a great simplifier, as its advocates would have us believe? Or is it just a different kind of complicated? So I'm recording this interview with you using technology. I love it. On a good day, it's fantastically straightforward. On a bad day, it's absolutely not. But it's also a proxy for the real intimacy that happens when humans get together physically. So I think it is both simplifying and complicating. But at its best, and let's remember that we're only a thousandth or less of the journey down the path of technology that we will be over the next 80 years till this century ends, when AI really kicks in, at its best, it brings people together. I think many have found during this period of enforced hibernation, when we are locked into our homes, that we can communicate in really wonderful ways, particularly if we can see the face of uh, colleagues and uh, friends and loved ones. And it can be differently good to seeing people face to face. So I think that we have to maximise the ways that it enhances the human experience. And the human experience is the benchmark of whether something is good or bad. And it's the experience of many, not the few, that we need to be careful of. Educationally, the technology can provide a top-class standard of education, a Harvard education for every single child on the planet and in a personalised way. So that has to be the biggest educational benefit that we've ever seen, which is technology delivered. But equally, it can brutalise, it can damage, it can infantilise We see job after job stripped of uh, meaning and values that London black cab drivers in London are now rendered all their knowledge is rendered useless and worse than useless because knowing how to get from Fenchurch Street Station to 
Paddington no longer helps because the sat nav will know things that the driver can't possibly. And uh, airline pilots used to be a highly specialized, very responsible job, is now an overseer of technology. That journey will happen increasingly for teachers and lawyers and accountants and business people and medics. And yet there will be jobs that we still need to do. And we have to make certain that the transitions are in the interests of the best in humanity. That's going to be the biggest struggle. It's a far bigger struggle than um, global warming uh, to make certain that AI works in the interests of humanity. It's the bigger threat to humanity. We will solve global warming. I don't know how, I don't know when, but we will solve it. Partly because the big money and the will of governments nationally and uh, supranationally is in the direction of solving this. In AI, the big money is in the interests of driving those big tech companies to have a greater intrusion in our lives and, and yeah, infantilization. In that sense, Julia, simplicity is not good. Making our lives, rendering us uh, useless idiots where we don't have any challenge in our life. We need challenge. And I would want to finish saying that. Well, that was heartwarming and that was interesting and that was provocative. Anthony Selden, thank you very much for sharing with us your simplicity principle. Absolute pleasure to talk to you, Julia. Well, I could listen to Anthony Selden all day, but I want to finish today's programme hearing from one other vital voice in the whole question about mindfulness. And this is the voice as it relates to the world of work and the world of business. There's really no better expert than Louise Chester, the founder of Mindfulness at Work, who heads up the UK arm of the leading leadership development specialist, The Potential Project. Because let's face it, most of us work, most of us know how difficult it can be to set aside the complexities and complications and chaos of the workplace for, well, let's find out from Louise how we can replace it and what with. Anthony Selden has talked about mindfulness as being intrinsic to the concept of simplicity and that it's about the simple, empty mind. Is that for you what teaching mindfulness to corporate leaders is about? What we do is introduce leaders to the space between stimulus and response, because in that space between life coming at them thick and fast and uh, the reaction often to it, there is this space where there is an opportunity to choose. And the choices they make are absolutely crucial, not only for themselves, but those they lead and for the wider world. So, yes, it is absolutely that kind of wordless um, space, which is that kind of space of potential. I quote you in my book, The Simplicity Principle, talking about that space as a stillness. And I thought that was a brilliant encapsulation of space. Lots of people do talk about space, but you talk about stillness. Tell me a bit more about that. Well, stillness exists at all times. It is with us. It's a matter of introducing people to it. Stillness is the space between the notes of music. It's the 
space inside the atom. It's the stillness within us. It is that place that we pivot from. So introducing people to it is, it has to be experiential, but once we find that stillness, we recognize it as home. That sense then is with us afterwards for us to be able to use at any time. I've often tried to visualize that sense of space and stillness and mindfulness that you introduce to corporate executives who need and want to be more productive and more creative. At its simplest, are you advising them to do some meditation or are you teaching them to be different people? What we're doing is is enabling them to become present, fully present, courageously present with themselves and others. And by doing that, they realise that there is that opportunity for choice in every moment. And therefore, they can behave in a way which means that these attributes of being a truly human, outstanding individual are potential for them in every moment. We're enabling them to behave in a different way, also giving them the hope and the understanding that actually all the attributes that they need are already within them. Space, stillness, these are key lessons in simplicity, even if you're in the eye of the storm, which many people are most of the time. You have to find that space to be still and really understand what's going on in order to make simple decisions and take action. Simplicity is a great declutterer. Stillness may seem counterintuitive at times, but goodness, it's effective if you can do it. Back to Louise. There is a sort of hopelessness, I think, about ultra-stressed, busy corporate types who are enmeshed and entangled in very complex corporate structures. Would you agree that simplicity is a way to cut through those corporate layers of complexity? Or am I simplifying the corporate malaise? No, I think you're absolutely spot on, Julia. Um, I remember years ago, I had to learn off by heart Blake's Auguries of Innocence. When I learned the lines, especially the first four, it really got me thinking. And I think it's probably one of the things that's led me to be talking with you today, actually, and, and the career I've had in between. For those of you who, who know and don't know those lines, Blake invites us to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. So a world, a heaven, infinity and eternity are all very complex things. But what Blake is inviting us to do is to see that in the simple, in the very human, in the grain of sand, in the wildflower, in our hand, in that space of time, which is within our cognitive load, within the hour. So in a way, I think that the simple things in life are actually almost the portal to the complex. And we need to start with the simple. And from there, we can actually have a a glimpse of complexity, but from a very calm and spacious standpoint. I really like that idea of the portal. How much resistance do you experience? I'm familiar with a certain amount of resistance to the concept of simplicity, that people think 
no life needs to be complicated. That's a sign of the advances if things are busy and complex. But I think that you and I believe that simplicity is both sophisticated and and a kind of sanctuary. I think there is mass capitulation that we're experiencing where those that we work with are saying, actually, we need to get back to things like, you know, what is our purpose? How do we create value for the world? How do we become a an organisation which is creating value for all stakeholders? So very kind of simple values or themes that they want to hold us a very strong stance on. And I think that creates simplicity because it enables you to have that true north in any decision that you make. So I think that that's very important. And I think as we move into a world where AI is going to create change that is exponential, what we're hearing is, is that people are wanting to make sure that there is also something very important happening on the human level at the level where we we don't go beyond our cognitive load, so that actually we as humans stay in charge versus the other dystopian option, which is that the machines take over. So simplicity as a sanctuary is something that you're teaching leaders to embrace, not so that they are accused of dumbing down, but almost the opposite, that they are gearing up to face the challenges of the AI century. Yes, and I think what we're also doing is debunking this myth that things have to be complex for people to be valued. I think there's a lot of fear endemic in the workplace. If you can create a culture of psychological safety where people don't have to pretend and obfuscate and make things complicated... And they can actually say, I don't know the answer to this. Um, Let me find out or start to learn that being a good leader is about asking great questions and being really present rather than having to know all the answers. It means that as a leader, you can actually boil things down to being their very simplest. And then you're actually being truly of service to those that you lead. Uh, Making things really complicated is often something that people who who can maybe lack intelligence, so much intelligence do. Um, I think the most intelligent people make things as simple as possible for everyone else. What a lot to think about and digest, in a still and mindful way, of course. My takeaway from both Anthony Selden and Louise Chester is that simplicity comes from letting go of everything except what you're prepared to feel. But even in distressing situations, and certainly in fiendishly complex ones, If you're brave enough to just be yourself, to keep it real, to ask what's really going on and to really connect with the moment, the present moment, you're likely to do better. Here's to action, pure and simple. In the next episode, I look to what is decidedly not simple, the enormous complexity of science. And I was incredibly lucky that Sir Mark Walpert, former Chief Scientific Officer for the UK government, and now its Head of Research and Innovation, found time to talk to me. It is the nature of the universe in which we live, uh, the nature of the cells of our body, the nature of the atoms, the molecules of which they're made up, that every single one of them is enormously complex. And so one can't simplify it any more than it actually is. Do join me again for the next episode with Mark Walpert. You can find all episodes wherever you get your podcasts from, 
And if you would be kind enough to review the Simplicity Principle, it helps others find us. It really does. This has been an editorial intelligence production for, yes, the Simplicity Principle. It's edited by George McDonough and I'm Julia Hobsbawm. Thank you very much for listening. 